the Professionally Speaking Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Professionally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan J. Warner, and with me today is another special guest. We have Bauman Haji. He's an expert in the semiconductor industry, and he does marketing and business development. Bauman, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, we really appreciate it. I, I speak for my listeners as well. We're really looking forward to it. And me personally, selfishly, I've been looking forward to this conversation. So, Bauman, why don't we, we get the ball rolling here? Can you tell our listeners what's it like working with uh, sensor systems and in that industry? All right. So let me take a step back first and tell you the 30,000 foot view. So the semiconductor industry, it's a, it's a buzzword that you've heard a lot, especially in, in recent years with the shortages, but everything that you own involves having chips that power it. And specifically within the semiconductor industry, there are sensors. So these are chips that sense light and turn them into digital information. And that's the field that I've been working in my entire career, which is almost 15 years. So it's it's really interesting. I've gotten to work in the consumer industry and also in the medical and now more closely in the automotive industry. It's a very dynamic field. And with respect to my actual role, so it's dynamic and cross-functional depending on the day. I work on product and technology strategy internally. So that's coming up with what types of products we need to have on our roadmap in order to serve the customer's interests, because they're going to be taking these chips, building them into systems and providing them to the end users, which can be anything from an automaker that's integrating cameras and LIDAR into their vehicles for autonomous driving, or it can be to a medical imaging PET or CT uh, provider for nuclear imaging. That's on the internal side. So I, I have to use my technical expertise, having an undergraduate and graduate degree in engineering and having that technical background to drive our internal teams. But then externally, it's more business development and product marketing. So being able to go to our customers and talk to them about their feature requirements, talking to the technical teams. But in addition to that, being able to talk to sourcing people on what they need in terms of cost and, and pricing and being able to understand at a system level what's needed to make their product successful. Because ultimately, what I do is my role has always been working for semiconductor companies, which provide a small part of the system that's truly integral. So if the performance of it or the cost of it is not up to par, it's going to make the entire end system that our customers are developing fail. So I hope that gave you a little bit of an overall view of what I do. It's sometimes difficult to explain it when you're so hyper-focused on a niche field and uh, explaining it to a general broader audience, but I hope I can convey the message here. Yeah, no, I think you did a, a really great job explaining it in, in lay terms for folks like us who who don't live in it every day, right? Like you're like a, a fish doesn't know it's in water. You just eat, live and breathe it all the time. But all I right. I do have a question though. And I, I picked up on this earlier. It's kind of going off on a tangent. When you mentioned LIDAR, I 
have only heard of LIDAR being used in the Amazon to plot out the terrain without trees and to scan like landscapes. How is LIDAR used um, in, in the automobile industry? I mean, maybe, do you know the answer? I'm sorry if I'm putting you on the spot here. I'm just curious. No, that's okay. You're actually right in my wheelhouse. So LIDAR is a technology that's been around for decades, actually. There's a really interesting book I forget the name of the author, but it's called The Laser That Changed the World. If any of your listeners are interested, I really recommend picking that book up because it goes through the history of LIDAR. When I switched from cameras into LIDAR in this field about five to six years ago, I that was one of the, the books that I picked up to read more about it because I like to know the history of it too. So Taking a step back, LIDAR is, it stands for light distance and ranging. So what you're oh. doing is you're sending out points of light and you're timing how long it takes to get to an object and gets reflected back. And based on that, you can measure the distance, okay. right? Because the speed of light is a constant and the distance will be twice that it traveled and you can time how long it took for it to come back. So that's oh. at a very, very high level how LIDAR works. Now think about a single point LIDAR that I just described. And it was initially used, believe it or not, to measure the distance to, I believe the moon. And this is straight out of that book. It's a really interesting uh, application. But obviously there's military uses and then more recently industrial and consumer and uh, automotive uses. What you mentioned in terms of mapping the Amazon, that's another thing, that's uh, geospatial mapping. So you'll have, uh, you'll basically be doing terrain mapping because you're gonna be flying a, an aircraft and then measuring the right. distance to the terrain and you'll be able to right. map out the geo, you'll be able to map out the terrain. Yeah, so where LiDAR really took off is uh, if you if you take a look at its, evolution the last, really the last decade is that every type of autonomous system. So, you know, if you're looking at robots, self-driving cars, all of these things, they require a sensing system. So you can use cameras like the human eye. So image sensors and, and cameras to guide that visual data into your system and then make decisions based on it. But the way that LIDAR helps you is because you have exact distances calculated based on that single point. Now, if you think about expanding that single point, scanning it across in the mm. X direction and in the Y direction, then right. you can think you're going to have a three-dimensional representation of your surroundings. This is extremely useful because you're going to be able to perceive the surroundings and not just be able to recognize objects based on what they look like, but based on how far they are and what their shape looks like, which can sometimes be distorted if you're just looking at a two-dimensional image. Wow. I had so, no idea there were all those applications for one single, I guess, tool. Yeah. And this is the, the, the reason why it's, it's such a critical sensor in this industry, because when you augment the data that you get from cameras with LIDAR, you're able to put those together. And there's this term, it's another buzzword called sensor fusion that's used in the industry. It's when you take the data from multiple, multiple sensing modalities, you're mm -hmm. able to not just have redundancy because each sensor works better in different environments. For example, cameras can't 
see through bad weather environments and fog, whereas LIDAR is using infrared light. So it's not mm. visible light and it's able to go through it. Good point. Uh, but it, more importantly, you can overlay imaging information and the color data from cameras with the distance information from LIDAR. And now you've provided a lot more data into your system to be able to make decisions. I could see how that'd be extremely valuable for, for people and for organizations. Absolutely. And the key thing that's been preventing the adoption of LIDAR at wider scale is really cost. Uh -huh. And if you look you know, over 10 years ago, and it's really, it started in the, in the nineties in the late nineties where there were R and D institutes and competitions for self-driving cars. And if you look at a lot of these early R and D trials where people wanted to make self-driving cars and Google was one of the first companies to try to do it at scale, you know, with their project X, which what is now Waymo over 10 years ago, mm -hmm. it was really, they, they wanted to give as much good high quality data into the compute system as possible. So a lot of these systems used many LIDARs, which is going to make the compute problem easier to, to solve than having a bunch of cameras where you need to spatially calculate kind of like our brain does how far something is based on the triangulation to the object. So what, what that did is it provided some autonomous driving systems that could perform well, but they cost a lot because LIDARs required mechanically moving parts. They required mm. sensors and lasers and all of these things. And over time, like with any industry and with any technology, as you ramp the volume and there's more innovations to make things solid state and small form factor, you're now able to see these types of systems go into consumer uh, goods and vehicles. So for example, Apple introduced LiDAR into the iPhone, I believe starting with the uh, iPhone, it was either the 12 or 11, 12 or 13 Pro. They in initially put it in the iPad and then they moved it on over to the iPhone and all of the iPhone Pro models have a LiDAR and have had it for several years. So that's a small form factor, low cost consumer, short range LiDAR, right? It can only sense uh, short distances, but you're also seeing multiple automotive companies like BMW and Mercedes Daimler announced that they have LIDARs into their level three autonomous driving vehicles that are passenger vehicles. Now mm -hmm. those are on the high end. They're vehicles that are you know close to the $100,000 range, the premium vehicles. But if you look 10 to 15 years ago, Ryan, if you drive a car, does your car have a backup camera? Well, yes, now, but 10, 15 years ago, no. Exactly. And I can actually tell you, uh, as of, I believe it was 2018, uh, NHTSA, or the National Highway Transportation and Safety Association in the U.S., mandated that every vehicle sold has to have a backup camera because the cost of these things became low enough that it was not a burden on automakers to put that safety feature in, and it saves lives. Ah, didn't know that. So, so in the US, every new car that's sold, and it's been like this for several years, has a backup camera. And these things have become low cost enough that you can have very high end ones on expensive vehicles and you have surround view systems where you can do uh, 360 degree top down view for your parallel parking. 
but also have it just if you're backing up and you have a you know a low cost maybe a, an entry level vehicle right so it's going to be the same thing with with lidar the advantage is there to to enable true hands free eyes off autonomous driving for passenger vehicles so that you can do something else during your commute if you're in a lot of traffic and that's the reason why safety is so important right if you want the driver not to pay attention you need to be really really sure that the automaker is going to make that a safe situation that you're going to be able to see obstacles or the vehicle ahead of you or small piece of debris that's on the freeway as you're driving and that's what's really important to make sure that you have sensor redundancy so those are use cases for lidar that are now up and coming and you know 10 years ago i think people were a lot more i would say in the autonomous driving industry a lot more bullish and expecting that things would happen very very quickly mm -hmm. but it's taken more and more time i think it will eventually happen but it's uh i don't know if you're familiar with the gartner height curve but there is this concept that people get really excited about something new and there's all this investment and money that goes into it and people think it's going to just go through the, the roof. And then there's this trough when it doesn't happen where people just get very bearish on it and say, this is never going to happen. And then you reach kind of a steady state that's in the middle. So it goes up, comes down and then goes up again and takes longer to achieve the potential that you thought would only take a few years and so we're kind of coming out of that trough, I think, uh, today in the autonomous driving industry and specifically with LiDAR being such an important piece of it. But circling back, it's just been a really interesting ride to be part of this field and be in this industry to attend conferences where experts in the field are bringing new innovations to it and learn about everything that they're doing and play a small role in enabling some of these companies to do amazing things that save lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds, I'm just hearing it from you secondhand. And I'm like, I wish I could go to one of those conferences and see a peek into the future and, and what, what the applications will be like and, and how that'll affect our day-to-day -day life. It's, the possibilities could be endless, really, with what you're describing, the technology. Yeah, yeah. And again, I go back to that book that I mentioned earlier. It gives you a nice overview. I think it's about four years old now, but it gives you a really nice overview of the technology in layman's terms. Uh, you know, it's it, it tells you what LIDAR is and why it's important, how it's been used and its potential in the future. You look at, as I mentioned, everything from automation in warehouse and uh, in, in warehouse situations and in sorting and then you look at autonomous driving and self-driving cars all of these are applications that this type of sensor specifically in addition to other vision systems are going to come into play and i've been again i've been lucky to be in this field during a time when it's really uh, developing and evolving over the last 10 years to go through all of these changes. Yeah, I mean, I could appreciate that. I, I I would feel the same way, I think. And the book, The Laser That Changed the World, we will definitely link that in the show notes for you listeners out there who are interested. 
Um, but we've, we've spoke a lot about lasers and, and camera, and you've done a great job so far giving us an overview of the industry and how things fit together. Uh, did you, like when you were younger, Bauman, is this something you always wanted to get into, working with lasers and cameras and chips on this level? Or, or how, how did that unfold? How did you end up where you are now? Oh, that's another interesting question. And I think when I go back to it, you know, my parents were both engineers and I always looked up to them. But my highest marks in high school were, honestly, they were English and world issues, which is a political science type course. And, you know, I had decent marks in courses like calculus and physics, but I just knew that the thing that I was going to go into, I, you know, when you're in high school, you don't really know what you want to <laughs> be when you grow up. If someone asked you that, I remember I had a yeah. friend back then who just said he wanted to be a dentist because there were dentists in his family. And, you know, there's some people that said they want to be doctors, but it's, you know, when you're 17 or 18, you think, you know, the world, but you don't really know what's going on. So I figured when you really look into it, getting a degree in engineering sets you up really nicely for what you want to do next. And I didn't know it at the time, but it also allowed me to be well-rounded. I did a lot of additional extracurricular things. I was the editor of our newspaper uh, at the university, the engineering school newspaper, and I got involved in a lot of other things, but I also did all of my coursework, right? And what I became interested in was at the time it was circuits and some, and sensors also, okay. but in your undergraduate, you're not really specializing too much. Sure. Yeah. So by the time I was in third and, and fourth year, we had to have a, a capstone fourth year design project. And I was really interested in analog circuit design. So we ended up coming up with an idea where it was me and uh, three other friends and the we did a project that was actually involved in, in automotive. It was called Horn Tunes. So it involved getting car horns and being able to program a system to play customizable car horns. Okay. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was interesting. It mm -hmm. allowed me to just kind of see, you know, the reason they make these, they make you do these projects in engineering is because they want you to kind of make something that involves all of the different pieces of the knowledge. And that's why they make sure. sure that you pair up with other people in your class. But at the time, I think I knew that I wanted to do more and I, I didn't really know what field I would end up in or what type of career I would want. So I ended up doing grad school, I ended up doing my master's after undergrad. And that's really when I became more exposed to sensors and to this okay. field. And I would say that's when I realized that doing this hyper-specialized thing, analog circuit design, which is a focused, specialized type of uh, electrical engineering, was not really where my wheelhouse was in terms of my strengths as a, as a person. Because during my master's, I worked on sensors for medical imaging. So it was for x-ray imaging applications. Okay. And that uh, that allowed me to do not just small design work, but I was evaluating a system. So I had to think of things at the system level. And the more you start 
removing yourself from the hyper-focused and get more general in a field, you start to see all of these trade-offs that you have to make. And that's when I realized a role that's more product-oriented, something like that, is is more what would be up my alley because you're not just doing these very focused simulations and thinking about designing a small circuit. You have to consider all of the system level considerations and the application, which was more my wheelhouse in terms of what I like to focus on. What I like to do is look at things at a high level, not be super, super low level, even though I do have expertise in, in a small area. So I would say, you know, when I was 18 or 19, I didn't know what path I was going to take, but I knew that if I got an engineering degree, I would set myself up to be successful in life. And every few years, there was this aha moment where I realized, okay, this is setting me up to take this next step in mm -hmm. life. And, and actually, my first job after I finished my master's was being a product engineer. So I still hadn't moved into the business development and marketing side. But it was an engineering role that was not like a, a very focused circuit design type of role. It was a product engineer has to look at everything from, from the time that the, the product starts design and when you're specifying features and designing it for test, you have to give your inputs there to when the, the product comes out of the fab, the semiconductor fabrication facility, mm -hmm. and you're testing it to when you're in production and you're looking at things like yield and lowering the test time and cost because you're shipping the parts now to customers and trying to make money for the company. So that allowed me to really get a general sense of the field. And that's why I think when an opportunity came up to then go into business development and marketing, it was natural for me because I was able to use all of that technical expertise that I had learned and now be able to leverage it to define features and products, going back to your first question, to be able to set technology strategy and be able to talk to customers in technical roles. So being able to talk to engineers on a technical level, but being a business person first be, allows you to have that relationship and have them trust you to, to give you the... Uh, to give you the truth in terms of what they require from you. And then for you to be able to barter internally with the engineering teams that you work with to tell them, look, I know this may take some time, but this is why it's an important feature that our customers need to have. One of the, the best things I think about your journey and about combined with your own characteristics, your traits, is that you can go into the weeds on certain subjects, but you also can give the big picture and you can change your communication style depending on your audience. And on that note, I know um, we spoke earlier and you go, you attend a lot of conferences and actually you deliver uh, presentations internationally. And uh, just curious for our listeners, what's that like for you going on an international stage in another country, speaking to folks at a conference? You know, the first time I, I did it, it was, it was a little bit nerve wracking to speak in front of a big audience of peers and colleagues, but you get used to it because I actually was attending some of these conferences and watching the talks. You build a lot of personal relationships, especially in a, in a field that's 
already focused. So you got you talk about semiconductors, then you talk about the automotive field within semiconductors, and then you talk about the sensors field within the automotive <laughs> field of semiconductors. So, you know, it's there's a few hundred people every year, and there's a few conferences that you attend where you get to know a lot of the people. So by the time I was stepping on stage to give talks a little bit later in my career, I would I'd say I was fairly comfortable uh, speaking there. But I think the most important thing as with anything else, and and you're an expert in, the, in this field, is to know your audience, mm-hmm. right? So the most important rule is that you have to make them understand what's in it for them. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't do that within the first few minutes of getting on stage, you've lost them, right? So you have to present and tailor your material to the audience that you're speaking to. That can be difficult if you're doing a, a general talk uh, and you don't know necessarily how wide your breadth of your audience is. But I, li- I, I like to just think about what I would think if I was in the audience and I was listening to myself, what I would want to get out of it. And that's how I like to tailor the talk. So going to these conferences, I mean, that's you get to go to a lot of locations around the world, which is interesting. I've attended conferences in in Europe and uh, Germany and in Belgium. And uh, it's it's different based on the, again, the number of attendees that are there. So sometimes I've given presentations in small rooms. Sometimes it's been a much larger room where it's a keynote for the entire conference as opposed to a smaller side session. And I think personally, you know, I I remember reading your book and taking some of the lessons out of there and also thinking about that that entire idea of anytime you're giving a presentation, you have to just think of it as I'm having a one-on-one conversation with a bunch of people. So I'm trying to pick somebody out and looking them in the eye and saying, okay, I'm going to talk about this point and then move on and talk about this point and not try to be phased by the fact that you have a whole bunch of people in the room that are all staring at you and, you know, get frozen in the headlights. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you've, you've, like you said, being at these conferences for years now, over a decade, I assume, I'm, I'm sure you've seen some dud presentations that you've had to suffer through from time to time. Yeah. I mean, every conference has this, you know, I, I even think about when I was in grad school, I'd go to academic conferences too. And you think that some of the industry conferences have some speakers that might be duds. No, I, I mean, if you go to an academic conference with PhDs and, and master <laughs> students giving presentations, it's uh, it's a whole different thing. I can't think of it right now. Or I, I can't think what it'd be like right now to attend one of those. Because you're just, I mean, everybody's younger and earlier on in, in life too. But yeah, yeah. Uh, to answer your question, I have seen some dud presentations. And frankly, you know, I'm guilty of having been one of those people um, you know, if not early on in my career, then before that, because it's a learning experience like anything else. You know, you get better at something the more that you do it. And you can't fault anybody for giving a dud presentation because at the end of the day, they're still up there giving it a try and getting better at it. I think that's the most important thing to remember. So I try to listen and if it's a if I'm in the hall listening to the presentation, it's because I have some interest in that field. So I try to always look at things with a good perspective and think about what I can take away from it. At the very least, 
even if the presentation isn't captivating, hopefully they've got some supporting slides and presentation material <laughs> that I can learn from. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I think I, I, I'm, I haven't seen you present, but I'm just assuming because I know you and I know your personality that you would put a lot of effort into developing that skill, that separate skill of public speaking and presenting that unfortunately in, in some industries, you know, companies just send someone and say, well, you, you know the product, so we'll get out there and talk about it. And that person may be very well versed in the product, but being able to speak for half an hour on it to a group of a few hundred strangers can be extremely nerve wracking for them. Yeah. And I can tell you from my experience, it's normally not the case where the company tells somebody who's not strongly tailored to it, hey, go and give a presentation at this conference because it's a reflection of the company as sure, well. It, sure. And it's usually it, it takes the initiative from from that person to say, I want to go and present and I have this material to do it. But what you mentioned is something that does happen more in the sense that, you know, you have different types of personalities and different strengths across an organization, but there's going to be people in a similar type of role performing similar functions across, say, product lines or segments. And I think you do have this situation where you have to go and talk to customers or you have to go and present something, maybe not in a conference environment, but in meetings. And in every industry, there's cases where there's people that are having to do that. They just get thrown into it that probably don't have the, uh, the, the skill set kind of honed to be able to do it well. And I've been lucky in my career. I've had mentors that were good to me and uh, that I learned from both on the, the, uh, on how to develop presentations and how to do public speaking. And so a lot of the things are where you kind of learn as you watch people do it, but mm -hmm. also practicing it. So I'd say this is why I go back to the whole being an engineer thing. So another thing I want to tell your listeners is personally, I think, especially with the cost of universities and colleges these days, I think you want to really focus on what to get a degree in if you're going to pursue what we call in Canada post-secondary education, right? So yeah. going to college and uh, getting an engineering degree gives you technical skills, but it also, they force you to do reports and to do presentations okay. as part of your undergraduate education, right? So I can think back and, and go, wait, I, I was presenting stuff during my undergraduate degree, you know, when I was between the ages of 18 and 22. It's, it's crazy to think about that now, but even going back to that fourth year design project, gosh, I hadn't th thought about that in, in years, but uh, I think there is a, somewhere on YouTube, there's a video of me presenting that fourth year design project to a local news station that came to our, our college. Uh, back in Canada, the University of Waterloo, and they did a report on the symposium where everybody had their project. And I talk about this silly car horn thing, and it's embarrassing to look back on. But at the same time, <laughs> I'm like, wait, I was giving an interview to a reporter, and I was yeah. presenting this thing in our booth to everybody that came by, right? So, so I think, you know, the whole you know, if I look at the last, uh, gosh, I'm aging myself here now, but if I look at the last 20 years, 
from the time that I started undergrad to where I am today, that whole time, I think I've been kind of leading up to the type of role that I have today, which is it's just in an industry that I didn't know about 20 years ago, maybe, but uh, the specific industry. Yeah. But now I'm, I really love what I do and the field that I'm in, in addition to the type of work that I do, because those are two different things, right? You can do business development and marketing and software engineering, you know, coding SaaS things. And yeah, I, I probably don't know the first thing about that, but I can do that same type of role in this field. And, and that overlap is is my sweet spot. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. All right, Bauman. So we're nearing the end here and we thank you again for your time. Last question we ask all of our guests for our listeners. If you could go back and talk to an 18-year-old Bauman, you know, just entering college, post-secondary, you could give them one piece of advice, you could tell them one message, what would it be? That's wow, that's a let me pause for a second here. Yeah, collect your thoughts. It's a tough one. You only get one and no like lottery numbers, <laughs> no who's going to win the Super Bowl in what year, anything like that. <laughs> well, as you've seen, I I have trouble keeping my thoughts to just one thing. I just, <laughs> but I'd keep it simple. I'd say, believe in yourself and keep going, especially at that age. I think, you know, I was I was actually 17 in my first year of college for the first month or so just turning 18 and, you know, high school is such a confusing time. And then you go into university, college, post-secondary education, what have you, Mm -hmm. and you don't know what to expect. And I remember in the first year of an engineering degree, especially in Canada where I I went to college, it, it is built to really weed people out. I remember one of the things that our, one of our first year professors said was, Look to your right, look to your left, and two of you won't be here in fourth year when you graduate. So these class sizes start with like <laughs> close to 120 per discipline. So I, I was in computer engineering. You know, by the time we graduate, there's, yeah, I guess eight, around 70 or 80 people left that graduating year. And some of those are people that do the lap year, you know, they, they wait. So yeah. the first year is is very dry. It's going way higher on the math and physics side than you learned in high school, mm-hmm. but it's not really doing interesting lab work or you have maybe one or two courses that keep you super interested in the entire first year. And you have to just believe that you're going to get through this and truck along. And and again, I go back to being lucky and having mentors. You know, it was we had teaching assistants, some of whom had gone through this, that gave me some of this advice, which caused me in later years to want to also give back and become a teaching assistant, which I carry through to grad school and always giving the advice to, to younger students that you got to just believe in yourself and keep trucking along because the path that you're taking in life is one that's going to lead you to success. Awesome. So was that, was that short enough? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was that was a great message. You you gave us the like the says. the full circle painting the picture of the circumstances. And you're right. I mean, at that age, you are hesitant to you second guess yourself. You're you're not really sure of anything. I mean, we say we are, but then when we're afterwards, we're like, ooh, do I really want to invest in this? Do I really want to do this? Do I really want to sink my time into this? Is this the right thing for me? And at that age, no one really knows. But 
No, I think our listeners need to hear that. That was a great message to leave on. Bob, and thank you again for your time. Thank you for joining us and sharing some of your wisdom and insights with our listeners. We really appreciate it. Anytime, Ryan. Happy to be on and thank you for inviting me. I hope you were able to get something out of this and your listeners and have a great rest of your day. (laughs) Absolutely, we will. And uh, to my listeners out there, we wish you success in your future endeavors. Thank you.